This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Professor Steph Haggard is the Lawrence and Sally Krauss Professor of Korea-Pacific Studies and the Director of the Korea-Pacific Program, which is a co-sponsor of today's event. Steph has been a prolific, just prolific scholar and author and indefatigable and constructive colleague and teacher and, of course, faculty here at GPS at UC San Diego. And, and Steph, uh, you're a distinguished professor, and I have to say it's been wonderful to be your colleague, have the honor of being your colleague for the last uh, few years, shall we say. Uh, and it's been great what you've done for our school and, and helping our profile. So uh, those of you who don't know Steph's work, he has a website, stephanhaggard.com, where he lists all his publications, which are grouped into the large themes of his body of work, which include the political economy of uh, growth, democratic transitions, the political economy of North Korea, and that of South Korea, uh, as well as the IR of East Asia, social policy and IR theory and qualitative methods. So if you go there, you can read all of his publications. Steph has a BA, MA and PhD from UC Berkeley, Go Go Bears. Um, and in a former life, um, and this is the Korea connection, Steph, if I may let on, you served in the U.S. Army uh, and were stationed in Korea. And so that's the connection there. Maybe that's the one thing that people didn't know about your CV. I, I wanted to count, but I, I ran short. I think you've written 10 books and 13 co-edited publications, plus 10 monographs, plus over 60 papers and over 60 chapters. And I stopped counting at that point. So sorry if I if I misrepresent your uh, phenomenal output. So thank you, Steph, for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, Ulrich. Uh, it's really a pleasure to reciprocate because I had a great time talking to you about your book. And Ulrich and I thought that what we might do today is consider the relationship between Korea and Japan and their distinctive approaches to the Asia Pacific. But I think we all feel that 2022 has just been this incredibly tumultuous year. Uh, where the tectonic plates seem to be shifting under us, but we don't know exactly where we're headed, if I can stretch a metaphor. So what I thought I would do before we engage in a conversation is to outline for you six data points, I'm going to call them, about developments in the region over the course of the year that I think have been particularly consequential and that frame the Japan-Korea uh, relationship, their relationship with the United States, and their relationship more broadly with the Asia Pacific. So let me start with data point one. Data point one is the Xi-Putin joint statement of February 4th and the subsequent initiation of the war in Ukraine. And for those of you who are interested in the region, if you haven't gotten around to reading this document, it's truly an extraordinary statement on the part of these two powers about what their interests and intentions are with respect to the global order. And there, there are fascinating aspects of the document that I can't go into here. For example, it starts with a very long discussion of democracy, actually, before it even gets to global order issues. It talks about different meanings of democracy and how democracy should be a homegrown concept and so on. Um, but but um, but this document actually goes into a, a whole set of details about how Russia and China think the world order should evolve. And for our purposes, one of the most interesting parts of the document 
is the more and more open critique of the two alliance systems which undergird U.S. grand strategy in the post-war period, namely NATO and the hub-and-spoke alliance system in Asia. Now, you know, obviously China has always, uh, at least since about 2000 or maybe the end of the Cold War, has been more and more skeptical of, of the alliance network in Asia. It once served a purpose of helping to constrain the Soviet Union. But this is really becoming a central theme of Chinese grand strategy that the U.S. alliance system in the two regions uh, is partly responsible for the, the, the difficulties and the tensions that we're seeing. Now, what's interesting about this to me is that the result of the Ukraine war has had almost exactly the opposite effect on those two alliance systems that Russia and China no doubt would have preferred to have seen. Namely, that uh, NATO is in better shape than it's been for some time. The U.S. alliances uh, have been strengthened. But more interestingly, and Ulrich, I'd like to hear your views on this, what I'm seeing is a, a kind of fusion of those two systems in the, in, the, in the sense that Europe is increasingly concerned about Asia. Asia is looking to Europe also to think of counterbalances to what's going on in the region. And you can see that in a variety of little traces, such as the fact that Japan and Korea, along with Australia and New Zealand, attended the NATO summit in June, and we see new emerging forms of cooperation from AUKUS to a whole series of bilateral defense agreements uh, and defense cooperation agreements between Japan and European countries, which we can come back to. So I think this is really a, you know, you can't avoid the Ukraine war, unfortunately, it's got to lead. Second data point is the 20th Party Congress. And in my view, the important message of the Party Congress is not in the long work report, though that makes an interesting read as well, particularly with respect to how it treats the Taiwan question, but simply in the politics of it. Uh, not only do we now have a third term for Xi Jinping, but the Politburo Standing Committee was packed with uh, sycophants, or let's just say supporters of Xi Jinping in a way which I think was a surprise to almost everyone. And what that means is whatever uh, readjustments in policy or pivots we might see coming out of Xi Jinping, for example, with respect to COVID, and we can talk about that, it's clear that we're going to be dealing with Xi Jinping's expansive vision of world order for some time. You know, this isn't something which has a term limit or shelf date. And so that's, I think, driving calculations in Seoul and Washington and in Tokyo, that this is not just a China that's susceptible to some shift in strategy at some future point in time, but is the China we, we will be living with for some time. Third data point, it's been a very interesting year for statements of U.S. policy toward the region. Um, and again, for our purposes, a couple of things are, are important, but let me just rattle through them. We have an Indo-Pacific strategy starting early in the year. We have the rollout of the Indo-Pacific economic framework in the middle of the year, and that's currently, uh, there are a set of negotiations going on to fill that out. I believe they're being held in Australia and Melbourne. There's a national security strategy. There's a national defense strategy. 
And tucked in there is a very important speech given by Secretary of State Blinken about what U.S. policy towards China should be. Now, you know, obviously there's a lot of content there, but again, two things for our purpose are interesting. The first is that we might have expected a fairly sharp pivot from Biden with respect to the Trump policy towards Asia, which he picked up from Abe and dubbed an Indo-Pacific strategy in 2017. But in fact, that that hasn't proven the case. Virtually all of these documents highlight the central role of China as a core competitor of the United States um, and, and really the core security challenge for the United States going forward on ideational grounds, on material economic grounds, on security grounds. But the other thing that does mark a very sharp pivot from the Trump administration is that the all of these documents are just laced with references to the alliances and to the partnerships that the United States needs to forge to manage the China challenge. And of course, the treaty allies like Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Australia, play quite prominently in that. But so does a, a wide ranging set of new partnerships in the Indo-Pacific region, most significantly with India, but also we saw very active diplomacy this year around ASEAN, including an ASEAN summit in Washington. But then in the course of about a week, summits of APEC, of the East Asian summit, of ASEAN, and of the G20 all held in Southeast Asia in the course of 10 days. So uh, now this, let me just say one other thing about this focus on China from the United States. To me, it raises a very interesting challenge for our alliance partners, because the question is, to what extent do those alliances commit those countries, including Japan and Korea, to the vision which is spelled out in these documents by the United States? And as you can imagine, as with any alliance, there are points of overlap where interests are aligned, but also those in which they're likely to diverge. And I think we'll spend time talking about that with respect to both Japan and Korea. But obviously, Japan is having to ask itself questions such as, how far do we want to go with respect to export controls on China? How far do we want to go in terms of making statements with respect to the Taiwan Strait? What would the content of those be? So, you know, very interesting set of challenges for our allies as the United States is set in its way. And even strategists within the Democratic Party are really moving away from the idea that engagement was a good idea. Um, again, an idea that we can come back to in, in the discussion. Fourth data point, now I'll move more quickly. Uh, we've now had a fourth Taiwan Strait crisis, in my view which clearly brings us back to Japan. And as all of you know, following uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, China undertook a series of quite remarkable military exercises around the island, including live fire ones. Now, you could make the argument that the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis of August 2022 wasn't as prolonged as that in 95-96, which went on over a period of almost 18 months. But it was nonetheless, you know, quite chilling because the live fire exercises had boxed out portions around the island that were essentially no-go zones. 
And there were a bunch of norm-breaking actions on the part of the Chinese, including crossing of, of the midline on the, in the Taiwan Strait, and even claims by at least one Chinese official that uh, China saw the Taiwan Strait as sovereign territory of China, a quite remarkable statement. Um, now, why is this significant for the two alliances? Because this is really the culmination of a much longer set of challenges for Japan and for Korea, which run through the militarization of the South China Sea, through the Taiwan Strait, through the Senkakus. And as our Japanese listeners know quite well, since 2010, 2012, um, during this crisis around the Senkakus, Chinese incursions not only into the EEZ, but into the territorial waters have continued apace. And, and of course, the Ministry of Defense keeps a good tally of these, and you can download the data and look at it for yourself, but it's basically been unabated since that time. And during the Taiwan Strait Crisis, uh, there were missiles that actually landed in Japan's EEZ. So, so the security challenges there have become more marked as a result of this. And I think they also play into a longstanding revision of Japan's defense posture for which um, Shinzo Abe obviously bears a quite significant responsibility, starting with the 2014-15 legislation, but going straight through to more important changes in Japan's defense posture um, placing much more emphasis on the Southwest to the Southwest Islands. Okay, uh, two final points and then I'll stop. First, uh, North Korea. Uh, North Korea you know, is, is clearly central to South Korean security considerations, but increasingly to Japan's. And just to put a, a short arc on this, if you go back to uh, the summit activity of 2018, which include, included both North-South summits and the two summits uh, setting aside a brief meeting at the DMZ between Kim and, and Trump, the two uh, summits in Singapore and Hanoi. This was a period when North Korea missile testing dropped to zero, literally zero, over the course of 2018. And it was a, a somewhat hopeful moment. Uh, I actually thought that taking these summits wasn't a crazy idea, or maybe it was crazy. It was out of the box, certainly, but you could see a certain logic in trying to break out of the logjam since we were stuck. But since the failure of the Hanoi summit, things have gone badly for North Korea in terms of what the United States uh, might have offered following Hanoi. And as a result of that, over the course of 2021, 2022, there's been an acceleration of testing, including of intercontinental ballistic missiles, one of which is at least overflew Japan during this last uh, flurry. Now, uh, negotiations seem highly unlikely to me uh, for a whole series of reasons, but the North Korean challenge and the Taiwan Straits challenge is raising these questions of what kind of military capabilities not only Korea needs, but Japan needs. And as you've probably seen just in the last few days, there have been quite striking moves on the part of the diet with respect to both fighter jet aircraft, but also on the need for a longer range strike capacity, which is again, stretching 
the edge of the uh, of the new norms that Abe set in place with the legislation of 2014-15. Okay, final data point, and then I, I think I'm staying close to the 15 minutes anyway. The Korean election of March was one of the nastiest elections in Korean history, as far as I can tell. It was a very polarizing election and raised extremely interesting questions about the polarization of political elites in Korea and of the Korean public. But it was a very narrowly won election, uh, less than a percentage point separating the two candidates. Um, but in some ways, from the United States perspective, uh, the election opened the possibility for an improvement in relations between Japan and Korea because the, pri the presidential candidate actually ran on a platform of trying to improve the bilateral relations. And I say that because this wasn't something which was just hit upon after the election. This was something that Yoon was actually willing to run on. And there have been very interesting set of meetings. Atara Aso has actually visited recently. Uh, and the conversations apparently went much longer than anyone expected. But still at the nub of the bilateral relations between Korea and Japan are these uh, history issues. And it's not just a comfort woman issue. As you know, it's the question of forced labor. And I suspect we'll end up talking about this more, but I'll just say that the Korean courts have gotten involved in this in ways that clearly complicate the bilateral relationship, but also complicate the position of both the Moon and, and Yoon administrations. Because if a, if a Korean court issues some ruling, it's difficult for the government to come in and say, look, you know, no, ignore that. Now, in fact, I think that's what the Yoon administration is trying to do with respect to the final judgment on this 2021 ruling that we can talk about. But it places the executive in an extremely uncomfortable position when having to tackle their own courts for diplomatic reasons. And so there are some solutions which have been suggested to this that we can talk about. But as of right now, it has continued to put a break on the ability of the two parties to, shall I say, normalize relations, if you can use that, that term. Ulrika, let me stop there. I don't want to run over any longer, and I'd prefer to have a conversation. So, Yeah, yeah. So let's open the conversation. And for those of you who um, joined us uh, after we started, so Steph, you made like there were five points, right? So the, the 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 big events of 2022 that will foreshadow whatever we're going to, you know, talk about today and then see next year, the the Ukraine obviously and the the changes in Europe, uh, the rise of China, which I I think I want to start us with U.S. strategies uh, that are shifting for all kinds of good reasons. Um, all of this is interdependent, of course. Uh, the Taiwan issue plus Senkaku and all of that, and then the Koreas, if I, you know, so the right. North Korea situation and what that means. So so the, the way we set up this conversation, which, you know, the idea came to us when we were discussing this over, over coffee, uh, you know, last week. And so, um, so what, what do these things mean for Korea, for South Korea, and, and how does that differ from what they mean for Japan? So for instance, the rise of China in, in all means and ways, right? So um, I'm, of course, more of a, you know, a business economic scholar. And I can tell you that, 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 that the rise of China means something very different for Japan and Korea in terms of business strategies. That's not our topic today, though. So I wanted to ask you, 
how what what is what are what are Korea's biggest issues with China, and how might those differ from what Japan has to consider? Yeah, well, this is this is a question that that gets asked frequently. But let me let me go back to what the baseline presumption is in the United States and why these the the relationship between the two of them is so frustrating, and then go to the nuances that you're getting at. I think the frustration comes from the idea that we've got two treaty partners in Northeast Asia. Uh, both of them have at least somewhat similar formal alliance commitments to the United States. So there's a problem of extended deterrence in both places, but it's been managed reasonably well. Both are democratic, both are broadly liberal, yet they're at each other's throats. And the history uh, stories are clearly a part of that. But I'm increasingly of the mind that the two countries have subtle but actually quite significant differences in how they're positioned vis-a-vis -vis China. And let me just walk through a couple of them. First of all, you know, it's actually not that Korea is more dependent on China. Uh, if you look at the trade numbers, Korea, uh, China takes about 25% of Korea's exports, about 20% of Japan's. So, so, you know, the difference there certainly isn't huge. But I do think that China believes that Korea is more vulnerable. And that's actually influenced its policy in recent years in a way which is typical of a boomeranging wolf warrior diplomacy, which is when the Koreans decided to put THAAD batteries into Korea, uh, China responded almost immediately with a very tailored and complicated set of sanctions against uh, Korean pop stars, against the firm in which these batteries <laughs> property had been located. I mean, just a, a really you know telling campaign that mirrors those we've seen in the Philippines and Australia. And so one thing I think is that China maybe feels, um, or Korea feels somewhat more vulnerable to Japan, which has faced those pressures to, in 2012 as well. But To China, you mean? Uh, yeah. Japan, no, Japan feels more vulnerable. You know, Korea feels more vulnerable to Japan, but Japan also has vulnerabilities in that regard, as we saw in the Rare Earths episode. Um, but the other thing I think is interesting and important to understand is the partisan politics in the two countries is very different mm -hmm. because in Korea, there really is a split between the parties in which the foreign policy stance of the country is quite significantly implicated in those differences. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that even the Komito has come around to, you know, some of uh, Abe's views of what Japan feels it needs to do, even though it makes sure they're clothed in a quite different language. But to go to the Korean side, you know, Korea, North Korea is not just an offshore military problem. It's a national problem. And there's a portion of the electorate, which is not trivial, which believes that it's the obligation of Korean presidents to do what they can to approach North Korea, to engage with North Korea, to figure out some way to reach at least interim agreements. And, you know, Moon's initiative in this regard were extraordinarily popular before the summit era ended. And there's really no parallel in, in, in Japan because 
the the non-mainstream faction has now gained dominance over foreign policy in in Japan. In my view, uh, Abe has been was quite successful in in engineering this shift, even though it obviously had prior you know prior uh, parents uh, under Koizumi and others. But um, but you know there there really is a different partisan landscape there. And I think that um, Korea is always going to be torn between those that think that it should rely solely and strongly on the alliance, as the UN administration does, and those uh, like President Moon outgoing, who certainly, in my view, maintain the alliance. I don't think there are any significant alliance problems. Some of my colleagues disagree, but wanted to engage with North Korea. And that impulse is just not, you know, you don't see it in uh, in Japan and it plays into China because the Koreans view China as a critical player in at least dampening the tension on the Korean peninsula and i think that uh, maybe Japan doesn't have that expectation <laughs> that China will be helpful in that regard but it's a dream that lives on in Korea so, so that's that's very interesting because it means that they're very think, thinking very differently about Taiwan as well. Uh, I, w- I would think uh, the the Japan's choice of war as a character of the year shows that Japan is really quite worried about not only the Ukraine and Taiwan, but this is where I want to go the the, the U.S. Right. So, what is the alliance? And from how I read the tea leaves and what my colleagues tell me is that Japan may be thinking that the United States has become a little bit unreliable. Is that is that fair? And does Korea think similarly about the U.S. or or how, how does that how does that compare? Yeah, well, well, this is this gets right to standard issues of how alliances generate. Uh, useful things for the for the participants in them and also create dilemmas. It's interesting that you led with the idea that the United States might not be reliable because of course the there's also the opposite problem which is we have this alliance with this country are we going to get entangled in whatever it is that they seek to do in the region which is a somewhat different problem in the way that I framed it. But I think, you know, I was in Seoul and had a, uh, over the summer in September at a track two dialogue we run. And I have to say that I was surprised by the extent that both my Korean and Japanese colleagues were talking about the problems of extended deterrence in a, in a way I hadn't heard for a while. And and so obviously under Trump, the question of the reliability of the alliances was front and center because he was very direct in saying that he thought that they were unnecessary appendages that were just simply costs. Now, as it turned out, his national security advisors up and down didn't think that and managed to keep those more extreme positions at bay. But the problems of extended deterrence are real as China and North Korea have developed a more significant um, uh, missile and nuclear capability. Now, everyone's focused on North Korea's capabilities, but I should just note that China is also engaged in a quite significant modernization of its nuclear forces, and it clearly believes 
as it probably should, that the development of those capabilities complicates the ability of the United States to successfully intervene in a Taiwan contingency. And obviously the same thing holds for the United States and South Korea. The conventional advantage, which the South Korean military enjoys on its own, quite separate from the United States, would be enough to deter the North Koreans. But all of a sudden, you introduce a credible nuclear deterrent on North Korea's side, and it naturally raises the question in Seoul and Tokyo, is the United States, it's not a question of whether it's reliable, but in a crisis, is the United States willing to take the kind of risks that might be necessary to signal a firm deterrent posture? And the North Koreans and the Chinese are obviously aware of this, and it's exactly part of the objective that they seek to to achieve. And so what's taken place in both countries is a a more serious discussion about what is needed to achieve extended deterrence in both cases than I've seen in some time. Yeah, so we had our colleague, uh, the Admiral Robert Thomas, uh, on on the Japan Zuminar, and those of you who are interested, you may want to go to our gallery and and uh, hear him talk about exactly this. And and he opined that while we don't know, we haven't seen China in warfare since 1979, so we don't know. But he suspects that it would not be easy for the United States to be effective. Alone, for sure. So, so, but then the, you know, so the, you mentioned NATO and, and the Ukraine thing. So, so the United States has been very clear with NATO that, that the U.S. wants NATO to take care of itself and put more money in and, you know, and, and, and enforce, reinforce, rebuild, build new, uh, its, its defense capabilities. Does the United States think the same thing about Asia or what's the difference in the U.S. view on NATO compared to to Asia? Well, you know, I think there, there are some differences on this, of course, because if you look at the Trump extreme, he was a critic uh, of the alliances almost entirely on cost-sharing grounds. I, I, I couldn't, it's hard to find exactly what his beef is. Obviously, there are economic issues where he thinks that we're getting ripped off by the Japanese and the Koreans because our market is more open than theirs. But we have a free trade agreement with Korea, so it's hard to know exactly how you would sustain that. And we might be headed towards one, who knows, if, if for some magical reason, either the Indo-Pacific economic framework takes off or the United States decides to get back to the TPP. Um, but but um, uh, but remind me of 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 what the the question was. You so so, um, so the U.S. has been critical of NATO, but basically say you know you go and do it. And in fact, when the the first Ukraine problem started a couple of five years ago, I think it was actually very amazing to Germans to see that um, then Chancellor. Angela Merkel was put in charge of, you know, you handle the Ukrainians and, you know, and, or the Ukraine situation. And, and the Germany was kind of, is this really true? Can is, Only 50 years after World War II, Germany is put in charge of, you know, peacekeeping Europe. That's That was quite a moment for, for Germany. Yeah. I don't think the U.S. has done that in Asia in, in that same way, right? And so it's, yeah. a, it's a very different situation, therefore. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a, a, a very complex issue. There's a lot of interesting research on how the region is responding and this whole question of hedging and the extent to which they're actually balancing China. But let me just make a few observations on it. And again, these have to do with interesting differences between Japan and Korea. The first is that Oddly, the left in Korea over the last decade has been quite intent on increasing the military capabilities of the country, in part precisely to gain greater independence from the United States. Now, again, you know, I've got colleagues in the policy community who are who think that the Moon administration was horrible for the U.S. Rock Alliance, and he was wandering off the reservation, and metaphors which just really are quite appalling, in my view, because we had very successful summits uh, between Biden and Moon and a lot of areas of cooperation as well. But one curious feature of the left, as I said, is they've invested heavily in the military in part because they're seeking operational control, uh, a, a reversion of operation control, so-called OPCON transfer from the United States, which still holds the position of, of uh, enjoying or having responsibility for operational control during wartime back to the Koreans. And in order to do that, Korea has agreed that it would achieve certain milestones of capabilities that would be laid out in a joint, you know, joint statements and a joint project to achieve this capacity. So, um, so I don't think Korea is is vulnerable on this to the same extent as Japan because it already spends a large amount of its GDP on the military. It's about 5%, if I recall. And uh, for quite obvious reasons, because it's a land-based power that sits next to another land-based power. Uh, the J Japan case is a little bit more interesting because, as you know, there's been this long-standing rough target of 1% of GDP, which now the new administration is talking about as much as doubling. And as you know from the news, there have been recent discussions of where that money is going to come from, you know, whether it's going to come from tax cuts or bonds or, you know, uh, cuts and other, other other programs. But I think uh, Japan has been somewhat more vulnerable to these critiques. But I think the environment is shaping this. This isn't the U.S. hectoring in both countries. It's the recognition that these expenditures need to be made. I mean, look at you can speak better this with respect to Germany than I can. But this isn't something where the United States is wrapping the German government over the knuckles. This is uh, the German government recognizing that it faces you know serious security constraints that it needs to take into account. And I see the modernization that's going on within the Japanese military is as responsive to the circumstances that it's in more than the U.S. Uh, hectoring. Yeah, so that I think that's the your first point. I think uh, the the meaning of of the Ukraine uh, war, really for both for NATO and Germany and and Japan, is that it, it it gave this impulse or this 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 final push to do what we've been talking about for you know so many years. I think for paying for it in terms of Japan. Part of it will be to just recount a number of expenses that are already made that are currently not counted military. And so it's a little bit easier to get up to those numbers. But yeah, it still is a, 
a major shift in Japan's position. So this is a reinvention of, of, of that part of Japan going on. So we have a number of questions from the audience that perhaps not surprisingly are, are about the Japan the direct Japan-Korea relation and how the United States can avoid getting too entangled in it. So, so Catherine wonders uh, whether you can explain a little bit more about this forced labor thing. You know, uh, you, you mentioned a little bit already, but but um, uh, how how can how can the United States work with both and not get entangled in in those sort of Japan Korea issues. It's a little bit like it's a little difficult to stay out, but it would not be smart to get involved either. No, I, I agree. And the, and the reason that it's important to the United States not get involved down at the level of the details is because the worst thing in the world that could happen to the alliances is for the United States to take substantive positions on these issues. So I think that what the United States can do is sit down with the parties and say, you guys, you know, we're not letting you out of the locked room until this is solved. Um, so, so let me just say a few, few words about the, the, the two history issues that are front and center here. The first, the first is the well-known comfort woman issue, which I'm sure most people on this call know about. Um, but there was a very interesting agreement reached in 2015 by the Abe administration. As you may know, Kishida was a foreign minister at the time, which, which means that he's intimately involved and knowledgeable about this case. But what people often don't realize is that the comfort woman agreement was actually not contained in a joint statement of the two parties. It was contained in two separate statements, which each made, each of which reflected quite subtle differences, but nonetheless significant differences. And one of the things that the Japanese statement said was that this agreement puts an end to this issue for all time. And of course, that's not something which anyone can demand of an agreement of this sort, because in a democracy, people can raise their hands and you know do what they say and what they want. So there's that issue. But the, but the issue more recently that's come to the fore has to do with a complex set of claims that are being made by workers of Japanese firms who were essentially mobilized during wartime and were they paid, obviously, were they conscripted, probably also obviously the case. And these uh, claimants are claiming that um, that they're, uh, they're and their relatives who were mobilized for the wartime effort, both in Korea and in Japan itself, as you know, are entitled to compensation from those firms. And the, the Korean courts have actually ruled on both sides of this question in really complex ways, because in some cases, they've sided with Korean, the Korean left, who claim that the 1965 normalization treaty between Japan and Korea actually had features of an unequal treaty if you can believe it. I mean, similar to the unequal treaty that goes all the way back to the annexation of Korea, because the government that signed it was an authoritarian regime under Park Chung-hee. And moreover, it was signed essentially to benefit him personally and politically, 
by making this uh, extensive property settlement and payment on the Japanese side, which he clearly used to good effect. I mean, it helped the modernization drive in Korea without question. And so the, the left is saying, not only is this treaty you know, itself dubious, but that, um, that the norms governing human rights have shifted in the interim in such a way that could not have been anticipated by the property component of the 1965 treaty. And so, yes, there was a, a document which was appended to the 1965 normalization agreement, which basically said that all property claims between the two parties are hereby settled. But does a human rights claim by a mobilized worker fall under the nature of those property claims? And you can imagine that a court could look at that and say, well, no, that's not what that property uh, settlement was designed to achieve. Now, there's one other additional complexity. I'm sorry to get into the law, but I'm, it, it just partly shows you how difficult these issues are to resolve. One of the problematic decisions in the, uh, that a Korean court made was to not only require compensation from the victims from the firms, but to actually require the government of Japan to compensate the victims. And this immediately raises this thorn, thorny issue of sovereign immunity, because for good reasons, as you can imagine, we have an international legal order in which countries can't just simply be taken to court you know, in another jurisdiction for quite obvious reasons. I mean, they would be doing it endlessly. And so, um, so this really requires a diplomatic solution. And I'll just close very briefly by, by telling you what's, what's being cooked up. You know, one idea is to establish some kind of fund, and this has actually been tried before, into which donors, in effect, would put money and assume the obligations of the Japanese firms for, uh, for payment to these workers. And so I think there's support for that. You might even get some forward-looking Japanese firms to contribute to that. They've certainly done it in the past when a comfort woman uh, fund of this sort was set up. But there's the Koreans are asking for an apology in addition, an apology. And as you know, apologies can sometimes be good things and they can help us get past the past. But, you know, the endless apology, you get tired of apologizing endlessly. And, and I'm, I'm at least somewhat sympathetic to the Japanese perspective on this. You know, how many times do you apologize? So, uh, so if we can get some device like that, a fund, and it would help resolve this issue um, because sadly, there aren't very many of these workers and comfort women left who are even alive. I mean, in one of the court cases, there were 12 initial plaintiffs, and I think there are only six that are alive. Then it's possible that this issue can finally be uh, put to rest and we can get back to like the Kimabuchi summit, which was just, you know, a forward looking episode where both countries say, look, you know, let's let's move on. And I, and I just think that's what has to be done. Yeah. So, uh, wow. Um, and, and yes, it's probably a good idea for the U.S. to not get entangled. But that brings up a strategic quandary, how to 
deal with this. How are uh, how are the relationships between Japan and Korea really? I mean, so we understand there are these his, history matters, but when I look at at people I know in both countries, especially uh, our students also and, and young people, there seems to be a lot of mutual admir admiration of Korean movies and Japanese cosmetics and certainly at the business level uh the two countries are looking eye to eye and uh uh what what admiral thomas told told me on on this japan zoomina just a few weeks ago is that also when it comes to collaboration on on defense matters uh the two militaries are, are very happy to work with the United States to, to make this work, right? So can you talk a little bit more about Japan and Korea in terms of today? How how bad is it? I mean, there's a lot of noise. Yeah. There's a lot of real bad feeling. But but what is the everyday sort of situation? Well, I, the everyday situation is not necessarily the same as what people will tell you when you ask them what their preferences are. So so the the good news is, The negative opinions of of, uh, of Japan actually appeared to be coming down a little bit over the last couple of years, but from fairly high levels. But I think the most interesting thing in the public opinion data, and this is from really interesting and high quality polling, in my view, that comes out of the East Asia Institute in Seoul and Genro in, in, in Japan, it's kind of a joint project, is, is the following, that if you ask Koreans what the reasons are why they have distrust or dislike for Japan, they almost always cite the history issues. It's not even docto, it's comfort women, it's you know, all that. But then if you ask Japanese about why they, they have distrust or dislike for the Koreans, it's because the Koreans continually bring up the history issues. <laughs> <laughs> so, so at the level of the cosmopolitans that you and I are most likely to know, I mean, the two societies, people travel, you know, Koreans go to Tokyo, people who live in Tokyo go to Seoul, and they go to the movies and all of that. But if you ask them about relations between the two countries, you get not only this dislike, but also this uh, this focus on those issues as residual issues which still hang over. But let me let me just point out one thing that is extremely interesting because I was looking at this excellent data that comes out of the Yusuk Ashif uh, Center and I'm, I'm probably have the wrong the name wrong in Singapore. And if you look at opinion about Japan in Southeast Asia, It's actually considered one of the most trusted partners out there, you know, as much as the United States or China or India or anyone else. And yeah, so, I actually found that the Pew data uh, support this. Yeah, that, uh, Japan is most liked um, of all of all places. Uh, and I tell you, I, I have a hypothesis about this, which which is is germane to 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 what we're doing here. It's because I I do think that that Abe's conception of a free and open Indo-Pacific actually, it was a, a sort of extraordinary concept. I mean, think about Abe what you will. I mean, people love him and people love to hate him. But, but you know, the idea of the free and open Indo-Pacific was really clever because at the level of grand strategy for Japan, it mirrors 
an offshore balancing strategy that the United States has pursued over the whole post-war period, which is, you know, we can't do this alone. We need partners. Where are those partners for Japan? Well, quite naturally, they're in Southeast Asia and India, obviously, and reaching to the Indo-Pacific concept by seeing India as a long-term player in this game. But the other thing that the Japanese conception of the free and open Indo-Pacific does, which the United States vision doesn't, is it lacks an overt alliance component. And so Japan can invest in the capabilities of the region and invest in infrastructure and even invest in capabilities which are germane to the military domain as this recent quad initiative on maritime domain awareness does, but at the same time without carrying the baggage of aligning with the United States in a way that may seem uh, overtly and directly threatening. So this gets back to this question of alliance entanglement to me. And I think there's a lot to learn that the United States can learn from how Japan has talked about the Indo-Pacific. And I'm really persuaded by Mike Green's new book, Line of Advantage, in which he argues basically the United States has picked this up from Japan. This isn't something that the United States concocted and then Japan, but you can trace the exact meetings in which Trump says, yes, Indo-Pacific, even though you know he did he wasn't in a position to really flesh that strategy out because his attention span was short. But, you know, this is clearly a Japanese idea. It has a values component, which I find extremely interesting. And Mike Green has very interesting discussions of how Japan came to that values component, which wasn't an obvious thing for Japan to do. It has a rule of law economic component. So Japan is standing up for free trade, regional integration, um, taking the mantle of the CPTPP. And it has a security dimension, but not one that is alliance-like. Not one that is alliance-like. So we have a, a bundle of questions. I have, I have two more questions before we, we wrap up. So the, there's, a, there's a whole cluster of questions about Taiwan. Uh, Lev Karras, so is actually an alum of ours, um, asks about uh, the Japanese interests. There are some calls within Japan calling for Kishida to align the administration to align itself more closely and unambiguously with Taiwan. And given Japan's business interests in China, he wonders whether that's actually a non-starter. But then also, how does Korea view the Taiwan strategic position? How, how do how do Korea and Japan differ in how they view the Japan matter, I guess, is where this boils down. Well, look, I apologize for every part of this this webinar where I've talked too long. So let me try to do this very quickly. <laughs> no, no, that's I fine. think one of the central differences, and it's simple and obvious, is that Japan has territorial issues with China that are in this space. I mean, this isn't just about Taiwan. This is about the Southwest Islands, and it's about the Senkakus. And so, you know, this is not an abstract security interest. I think for Korea, the problem is more sharp because any drawdown of American forces or refocus of attention on Taiwan Strait obviously raises the question of, whether the residual capacity is there to manage a contingency on the Korean Peninsula. 
So the Koreans are more concerned, I think, that Taiwan is something they need to pay lip service to, but probably don't want to go too far. While increasingly for Japan, despite Left Terrace's point about the cross-cutting business interests, this is a real security issue. And this is not a something which is foisted on them by the United States. And Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida at the Shangri-La Dialogue stood up and said, today Ukraine, tomorrow Asia. And he was clearly not specifying what the contingency was, but he, you know, it's pretty clear that Taiwan is at the top of that list and Japan needs to be concerned about it for obvious geographical reasons. Yeah, so so I think that's that's very um that's very insightful. But that that that's a fundamentally different matter for for both. And therefore uh the the way both countries think about how they need to prepare for it is also very different. Right? So um uh, as as regulars on the Japan Zoomina know, I like to close with a question that Hugh Patrick, my mentor, taught me early on. And Hugh would always ask. Uh, the one sort of uh, short and simple question, which opens all kinds of cans of worms, which is uh, in this space of the Indo-Pacific and the, you know, 2023, what worries you most? Well, let me actually start with an answer that might surprise you, because I think all of us get a little bit of clientitis and you really have to push against that. And so I'll start by saying I don't actually wake up at night worried deeply about the Korean Peninsula. Uh, I know that might sound strange, but I think it's much more stable than people think. We were expecting a seventh nuclear test. It could still come, but it hasn't. There's a lot of testing going on, but no one's getting killed. And and so, uh, you know, I think Korea is effectively deterred and the United States is effectively deterred, honestly. I mean, the United States is not in a position to take out North Korea. Uh, we're learning all kinds of lessons about how difficult and complicated war is. But I'm worried about Taiwan. And I'm worried about Taiwan because China can't seem to get it right. It's struggling. And Hong Kong just had a devastating effect on China's efforts to make itself appealing to the Taiwanese public, which was in any case a, a very you know, stiff uphill battle. But after Hong Kong to come back in the wake of this crisis and say, one country, two systems is the way to go, just suggests to me you know, a complete tin year in terms of how this plays in Taiwan. Now, does that mean that that China is going across the strait? I am of the school that they're looking at Ukraine and saying war is complicated and difficult. Don't think it's easy. But nonetheless, I think this is probably the area where the United States and China are most likely to miscalculate because the United States also is barreling along with a new piece of legislation, which was formally called the Taiwan Policy Act, but which has now been amended by the Democrats to strip out some of its more offending components. But nonetheless, it's committing the United States to a very substantial increase in arms sales to Taiwan, which I personally think we need to do. 
But we have to figure out how to message that simultaneously with assurances to, to China. And this is true with respect to Taiwan and more generally, that we're not going to uh, you know, allow Taiwan to drift into an independence place and that the one China policy, um, you know, and not, not the one China principle, which is China's conception, but the one China policy is something the United States does in fact adhere to and is serious about. So I think that's where miscalculation is possible, including just at the military level, you know, an accident. The, the Chinese are scrambling a lot of aircraft around Taiwan, and the Taiwanese military feels compelled to go after them and put jets in the air. And whenever you've got a circumstance like that, the possibility that something go wrong is non-trivial. Yeah, Hmm. So the problem with Hugh's question is that it always makes us end on a on a bad note. So is there anything? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad that you're not worried about about North Korea. That that is a that is a relief. Well, not um, as much as others. I'll put it that way. Not as much as others. Yeah. So so um, what will it take to keep uh, keep uh, the, the Indo Pacific in a nice equilibrium for for 2023? So we have a preview for 2023. What what is your if you take your crystal ball out? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I'm, I'm just hoping that some of the actions which are taking place by the United States, as long as they don't uh, veer off into a new form of, of warmongering, signal to the Chinese that what to me is the key message, which is you're making life difficult for yourself. And I certainly don't think U.S. policy is blameless. We're, we're prone to mistake as well. But I think if I really had a concern, which is in some ways bigger than the Taiwan concern, It's that China is behaving in ways which are generating exactly the behavior that they claim they're concerned about. But it's a result of what China's doing. And so it's concerned about encirclement. It's concerned about NATO expansion. It's concerned about the Indo-Pacific strategy. It's concerned about the alliances. But why are the alliances there? The United States can't make countries turn towards us. They turn to us because they have fundamental security concerns and they're worried. And, and hopefully, uh, maybe as with COVID, uh, there may be a pivot on this in such a way that, that, uh, that China and the United States can try to carve out those areas of common interest that would allow them to smooth over some of the things that are going on in the security space. All right. On that note, Uh, I hope that you're right on that. And thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It was a real fun. And thank you, audience. Uh, And with that, take good care and goodbye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.